Grow Fam, this is Stephanie Rodriguez, editor and producer of the Regenerate Revolution Life Soil Success podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone. This is Mark Irvin with the Regenerate Revolution podcast where we talk about life, soil, and success. Today's guest is Ian Bateman from ICL and various other places to talk about what is the difference between synthetic and organic fertilizer. What is fertilizer? What is it made out of? All those different things today we're going to talk about and ask questions regarding commonly asked questions that we see online all the time and what customers ask me at a table when I'm doing an event. So with further ado, Ian, how are you? Hey, good, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. So... People probably, let's start from the very beginning. A lot of people ask me, what is the difference between chemical, synthetic fertilizer, and organic fertilizer? Sure. So I think the big distinction would be, are they in a form that the plant can use? So, and you know, I'll push back just a little bit on your framing, Mark, I don't hold you accountable for this yeah but it's really just just how the how the public perceives these things Mm -hmm. first of all when we say synthetic that word i don't like that word i prefer mineral i prefer mineral Mineral sounds better it does sound better because the reality is the distinction is this mineral fertilizers are fertilizers that are mined from the ground typically right we have these big mineral deposits that build up over millions of years these mineral deposits at one point or another were made up of living organisms plants mm-hmm. plankton diatoms whatever it might be over time the organic matter the carbon that's in these organisms break down and what's left is those purified mineral deposits mm-hmm. those are mined and yep. typically purified and that's what you see on the store shelves And I think that's a great way of illustrating to people because, you know, when you are told about the boogeyman out there that are going to cause chemical burn to your plants and your your plants aren't going to have as much of a taste, they're not going to have as much flavor, and and they're not going to be as good as an organic fertilizer, they kind of get told that, you know, synthetic is the word they want to use because they're saying it's derived from petroleum products and it's derived from this harsh chemical process. So it is good to kind of make the distinction that, you know, mineral-based fertilizer is in a available mineral form that the plant can take up right away. Versus organics, organics need to be broken down. There's one extra step that have to be put in there. The microbes that are in your soil have to break down into its constituent components and then feed it to the plant's roots. Versus the synthetic fertilizer, which we're calling mineral today, <laughs> is basically ready for the plant to uptake, right? Yeah, so, so the distinction, again, would be the organic fertilizers... Um, are in a raw form, right? They're typically derived from animal products or mm-hmm. plant products. They're bound up. The nutrients the plant uses are bound up in carbon. They're bound up in living material, um, or was what what's, was uh, once living material. And that, need, like you said, needs to get broken down by microbes. Contrast that to the mineral fertilizers, where that process has already been done by nature, probably mm-hmm. millions of years ago. And so we're yeah we're, we're skipping that intermediate step. Um, and so to me, that's that's the distinction. Now, there's this whole legalistic, regulatory distinction we could get into, but 
know that not all organic fertilizers you buy at the shop or the store or what have you that say organic on them, it doesn't always mean what you think it means. There's a lot of sort of call them like loopholes that that take place in the fertilizer world so i'll give you an example magnesium sulfate or epsom salts Mm -hmm. right people use that as like foot baths or whatever Mm -hmm. right um mineral baths they're also it's also a plant nutrient um that can be considered organic even though it doesn't fit the chemical definition we just both agreed on right where it contains carbon well mag sulfate doesn't contain carbon but the organic regulatory bodies know that well guess what we can't really get good sources of magnesium um, economically otherwise. So we kind of have to make this concession. We go, you know what, mag sulfate is considered organic, even though it's not organic. We're just going to kind of bring it into the fold. Well, yeah, right. and I mean, let's let's parse that out a little bit because I think some of the people listening might also not know. What does salt have to do with fertilizer? Yeah, sure, sure. So I get that all the time. You know, I grow with salts, mm-hmm. right? And again, yeah. I, I, I kind of hate the framing. I Crop mean, salts. We hear that all the time. Right, yeah. right. So, okay, so here's kind of how this works. Plant mineral nutrients are only available to the plant when they're dissolved in water. Mm-hmm. And those nutrients are broken down into what are called ions, which mm-hmm. is just, it just means they can dissolve in water. They carry a charge, mm-hmm. right? So every plant nutrient that is available to the plant Um, comes typically as a salt, which means that it is a positive ion and a negative ion. They join together. That's what a salt is, right? So sodium, Na+, Mm -hmm. chloride, Cl-, that joins together as table salt. Mm -hmm. Magnesium sulfate, very much the same thing. Magnesium plus sulfate, you put that together, it forms a solid. We call that mag sulfate. That's Mm -hmm. a salt. Yeah, and, you know, people talk about... uh, They think that somehow... You're growing with table salt. They think that... So we're talking about chelation of nutrients, right? We're mm. talking about... And, and let's expand on that for the for the people because they're going to see that word and people respond to us on our website time and go, what is chelation? What is... What <laughs> yeah, is yeah, Chilean? Yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Is it Chilean? Does it come from Chile? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so explain how that ties in. Sure. So... It's a broad term. It has a chemical, again, a chemistry definition, and then there's kind of an industry definition. Mm -hmm. So the strict chemical definition is when you have an organic uh, uh, molecule that will attach to an inorganic metal. Okay, so in this in this instance, most of the nutrients, the plant nutrients, are metals, mm-hmm. you know, technically speaking. And so the chelate is the thing that attaches to that metal ion and protects it. So the chel- chelate, I, I use it synonymously with like protection. That's how I like to think about it. Mm-hmm. So why do you want chelation? You want to protect your nutrient ions from reacting with whether it be things in the water, things in the soil, things that keep your plant root from uptaking it. Uh, I mean, that, and that's and that's an incredible segment. I think for us because people don't think about water quality when it comes to fertility, right? And, and, and using a fertilizer substrate. So what, I mean, you know, when we're using a mineral based fertilizer, so that can happen, right? We can have some ions flip and you're going to have some components of your fertilizer being now non-available or precipitate out. So let's talk about that. So if it's not chelated, right. And there's an ability for some ions to flop, flip flop, like, Talk about calcium, for example. Like, I mean, what are the pitfalls of using a mineral-based fertilizer but not having it be chelated and the water source is dirty? Sure. So different nutrients are more or less reactive with different contaminants that are present in the water. 
Hard water is defined as water that's high in magnesium and calcium ions. Calcium especially is a very, very reactive mm-hmm. ion. Mm-hmm. It tends to grab onto other nutrients. It just flips back and forth. Right. So if you have things like phosphate or mm-hmm. sulfate, uh, which are you know key and essential plant nutrients, in the presence of high calcium ions, that calcium will grab on and form a salt, essentially, yep. right? It'll go backwards. Instead of dissolving in water, yeah. it'll form a solid in water. Your plant roots cannot uptake solids. They can only uptake ions or dissolved nutrients. And so now it's no longer available to the plant. So you're putting in all this nutrient, you're paying good money for it, and it's just winding up in your soil, sitting there for time immemorial, and your roots really aren't, aren't touching them. And it could also, like in an irrigation system, it could plug your emitters. Because, because it's not precipitated out and it's 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 not soluble so people a lot of people ask us all the time they're like hey you know i've been having trouble you know my my emitters keep getting plugged or i'm i don't know what i'm doing wrong it seems like i have a lot of precipitate at the bottom of the tank and this is where i do inform them i say hey what have you done for your water test where is your ph at let's look at those reports and they're like i don't know i just take tap water and i put it in the tank well no because you know, pH, which we can describe to people, potential of hydrogen, that has to be in the right zone or else other things will precipitate out too. So, sure. So if we want to think about chelation as protection for your nutrients, we should also mention, like you said, pH and its interaction with the availability of nutrients. Mm-hmm. Um, because especially the minor nutrients, so things like iron, manganese, zinc, copper, etc., these nutrients tend to be very, very susceptible to um, pH. And what I mean by that is if we, so let's define pH. pH is the concentration of um, hydrogen ions in water, so the acidity of water, mm-hmm. right? Uh, pH of 7 would be neutral. pH of uh, less than 7 would be acidic. Uh, pH in excess of 7 would be alkaline. Uh, minor nutrients really like a very acidic pH to be um, in their ionic or, or soluble form to the plant, their available form of the plant, I should say. So really, that's like pH 4 or 5 is really where most of those minor nutrients are. And that's how they're stored in liquid format, right? So Typically, yeah. Most, most um, liquid fertilizers you see on the store shelves tend to be pretty acidic. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to measure the pH of most nutrients out there, you're going to find it's going to have an acid pH, especially if it contains minor nutrients. Yeah. So, but most plant nutrients and the plant itself doesn't really want a pH of four or five. I mean, there's some exceptions, mm-hmm. but typically the plant wants something more in the slightly acidic, somewhere in the six. Sixes. Typically yeah. where you see the pH being optimal for most crops. So now we have a problem, right? The <laughs> minor nutrients want yeah. four, the plant wants somewhere in the sixes. How do we square that circle? We bring in chelates. So most of the minor nutrients out there are chelated. Yep. And you'll see that on the fertilizer label and mm-hmm. say chelated by. And that's when I went um, earlier when I was mentioning, well, what's the definition of a chelate? Well, it turns out there's a lot of different types of chelates, mm-hmm. and some are better than others, and some... Uh, EDTA, right? EDTA would be the industry standard chelate, mm-hmm. especially... I don't even want to try to pronounce that whole word, because it's just... I, I, I don't even know... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I okay, couldn't yeah. even break it down. It's a big acronym. At the little... little something like something that. Something like that, right. Yeah. But basically, you know, the way I like to visualize EDTA is a good example. It's a good chelate. Because it forms a really strong attachment to the mm-hmm. nutrient that it's chelating, that it's protecting. Uh, but it's not so strong that it doesn't break off. 
right? We have other chelates that are marketed as, oh, this holds on to the nutrients stronger. It has a broader range of efficacy across a, a bigger uh, pH range. The issue is it doesn't want to let go of the nutrient, which is also a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because if it holds on to it too tightly, well, that's great. It can't react with anything else, but it also won't break off, so the root can't uptake it either. Mm-hmm. So EDTA is kind of like the Goldilocks of the chelates in that it keeps the nutrient available up to somewhere in the pH 7 range, somewhere in the mid-7s mm-hmm. is typically what you'll read in the literature, um, but it also will let go. <laughs> so, the yeah. plant can, so at the end of the day, the root can actually touch it. Things like DTPA, EDDHA, these are other types of chelates that you'll probably see on some fertilizer labels, and they have their place, but for me, to me, they're secondary because they're, they're too strong, and that's not a good thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it's good to at least touch on that subject because a lot of people will read the label. I'd be like, I don't even know. I don't even know what this acronym means. And I think to get, we gave them a good understanding now of why that's in there, how it works, you know, and, and basically, I mean, just to touch on the water quality piece, I mean, it has to be in there just because you're working on diverse water quality across the spectrum and environment across the country. So sure. Yeah. And I work mostly these days in the greenhouse and nursery industries. And when I go about consulting with customers, recommending fertilizers, you really want to start the conversation with water quality. So have you done a water test? What's in your water? What's going on? Um, if they don't know that, that's something where some opportunity that, that someone like, you know, like someone like myself could come in. We have our own labs we work with. Um, we can, you know, first get the water quality figured out because a lot of times the fertilizers that I'm going to recommend are tailored to certain types of water. We have fertilizers that are good for soft water or water that has very low um, levels of of dissolved nutrients or or other contaminants in them, all the way through super alkaline water where the fertilizer will come baked in with plenty of acid, so it'll drop the pH and allow those nutrients to become available. Because you're right, if, if you don't know what the pH of your starting water is and you start adding all these nutrients in, maybe it'll work out well, maybe it won't, you don't really know. Yeah. There's one way to find out. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, it goes back to our kind of talking about pHing again. Is it, you know, most people, I, you have to pH your water. You know, some people want to do it before and after. But, I mean, you're going to need to have a baseline test where your water's at. Know where your fertilizer's at. If you add an ounce per gallon of liquid organic or liquid synthetic fertilizer or liquid mineral fertilizer, where does that drop your pH to? Do we need to raise the pH again so it's optimal for the plant? Right? Sure. I mean, we can't just take, I mean, you, you can do a calculation, but I mean, if your water drifts throughout the season, if you're operating off a well, you got to take four tests a year to kind of know where you're going to be at. I think that's a good baseline. Yeah. yeah. And if you're working in the more like the hydroponic context, you're an yeah. indoor grower, um, maybe you're using reverse osmosis even, mm-hmm. right? You're stripping everything out. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. You still need to know what the pH yeah. is. And you probably should still do regular tests because guess what? Those RO membranes, they don't last forever. No. And stuff starts sneaking through. That starts to affect your water chemistry. And, you know, this is something that I, mean, I could just keep going on and on about this. Um, it's definitely something that's overlooked you know even a lot of really large commercial growers it's it's it water is almost the first problem that every grower doesn't know they have sure i mean and and, you know i'll I'll go further one of the things that kind of drives me crazy is and and this was more you know more my previous role when i was working uh, as a distributor of um, ro systems you know customers will come at us hey we want we need ro we need ro 
Um, we just, you know, our water's terrible, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what's in your water? I don't know. <laughs> well, how do you know you need RO? We just need, we need RO. We've always grown with RO, RO, RO. Well, the thing is, is there's good things in your water too, right? And if you strip all that out, well, you might have to add it back in later. And why are you doing that, right? You're just going an extra mile. And I'll give you a few examples. One of them is, so what makes your water alkaline? What makes the pH higher than seven? Typically, it's something called carbonates, mm-hmm. right? Or calcium yeah. carbonates. Yep. And that's the same stuff that the scaling you see in your shower or your Absolutely. sink. Yeah. But those carbonates can actually be a good thing. Because what they do is they act like a sponge, and they soak up acid. They soak up hydrogen ions. So if you have zero carbonates in your water, you have an EC or a conductivity of zero, there's nothing in the water at all. It's perfectly pure. Well, now a tiny amount of acid or base will move that pH up or down. completely. And it's very hard to manage that. And that's why even when people talk about spring water, we want to drink spring water. It's It's clean. But when it gets filtered through the mountainside, it's getting filtered through calcium. It's getting filtered through those different types of calcium carbonates to make it into a fresh spring water. It's not bad that there's some in there. It just how do we mitigate that with changing the pH? And how sure. To- I would even argue it's good and necessary. Yeah. Yeah. If, you, if, if a human were to drink RO water exclusively, they would have a lot of health problems. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> what, what's going to happen, it's going to pull minerals out of your cells, uh-huh. and you're yeah. going to urinate all that out, yep. and you're going to become more and more depleted, right? Yep. I mean, that's why that's why Gatorade exists, and we yep. can, not to divert on, yeah, uh, of on Gatorade, but, yeah. <laughs> but, you, but you can think of the plant root in a very much the same context. If you were to feed a plant root RO water only over the course of weeks and weeks, you would have a very sick plant. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, in, you know, that's... You know, minerals are the essence of life, right? So we need to properly mineralize the water. We're doing that through both calcium carbonates and the nutrient, the mineral fertilizer that we're trying to put together. So I think people overestimate that this plant is very much like us. It needs proteins, minerals, amino acids. It needs all these things to function. It needs to have the right kind of water. You start feeding acidic water to the plant all day long, it's going to have a bad day, you know? Absolutely. So the most frequently asked question we're getting these days, too, is biofilm buildup, right? What is biofilm buildup? Sure. So you can think of biofilm like plaque, Mm -hmm. right? It's bacteria. Mm -hmm. It's different species of bacteria that form these little colonies, and typically, this takes the shape of uh, kind of gunk or slime inside your drip irrigation or whatever your irrigation apparatus might be. You'll see this kind of sludgy material. And if you give it enough time and enough food, um, that biofilm will start to occlude or block your, your drippers and cause clogs. And then your plants aren't getting the food they want or the water they need, and you know terrible things can happen. This is something that I used to run into a whole lot back in my my cannabis days when I was working more in the in the cannabis space. You know, growers would go from their small kind of hobby setups and their hobby fertilizer uh, stack, if you will, and they would take that to prime time, right? They would take that to a 10,000, 50,000 square foot grow operation with centralized fertigation system and complicated irrigation equipment, and they would introduce things into their drip lines that would promote bacterial growth. And, and those could be organics, right? T- yeah. Typically, they're sources of carbon, mm-hmm. soluble carbon or proteins, yeah. amino acids, that are perfect food for microorganisms. Mm-hmm. Um, so those things are good. I mean, those inputs are great. Um, I don't think that injecting them or introducing them into your drip lines and letting them sit there overnight 
is a good idea. So flush, maybe. Yes. So this is what they do in agriculture, by the way. So if you if we look at agriculture, it's become more and more fashionable to introduce things like kelp, mm-hmm. amino acids, and all these other sort of organic uh, components into their fertilizer mix because they realize that it's not just about the NPK and all the plant essential mm-hmm. nutrients. There's a lot of other good stuff in this organic material. But the ag guys know better, and so they don't let those stuff, uh, let those organic materials just sit in their drip lines. What yeah. they'll do is they'll they'll run it, and then they'll run clean water through those drip lines and push all that funk out, um, and then get, go on about their day. Which makes a hundred percent sense. You know, when I talk to you know commercial cannabis grower after commercial cannabis grower, and they're like, "Oh, I don't want to use organics because it's biofilm." Well, yeah, you want to use mineral fertilizers, and then a couple times a week you can use. The organics, I call it synganics, right? It's a sure. combination of the two. And they're like, well, there's biofilm in our film that are a little, that'll be like formed. And I'm like, okay, but are you not clearing your lines out? Like, how hard is it to clear your lines out? You could flush your lines once a week and you wouldn't have the biofilm buildup. Sure, sure. So to me, I feel like it's just, it's a lack of nuance in our industry or a lack of education where once you go to prime time, say you're running a hot house tomato greenhouse, a one acre great tomato greenhouse, you know to do this, right? You don't want to have a clogged line, but you still want to have some of those organics pushed through just to give extra flavor or extra punch or more microbes in your soil substrate, whatever it is. So my biggest pet peeve is Breathe life into your soil with GreenGrow. Organic, sustainable, all-in-one soil additives for your gardening and farming needs with the highest quality, non-harmful ingredients. Locally sourced, GreenGrow promotes probiotic soil building that will nurture and help your soil flourish, maintaining a living soil system for your plants to thrive. Easy-to-use products for all stages of growing. You take pride in what you grow, and so do we. Grow only the best with GreenGrow Biologicals. Order online or find your nearest location where GreenGrow products are sold. I mean, tell everyone, how simple is it to flush a line? It's, it doesn't need to be complicated. Yeah. Um, a lot of, um, you know, drip irrigation companies like Netafim or whomever, um, you know, they can build you a drip system that has auto purge yeah. functionality. The so purge that, valve. So, okay. so it, just, it just does it automatically. You don't even need to think about it. It's not a big deal. So if you're going to run organics, so things like sugars... Um, things like amino acids or kelp are common ones, humic acids, these sorts of things. They're great. I think they certainly have their place. Look, I, I tell customers this all the time. You don't need to pick a team. <laughs> you don't need to be in the organic team. You don't need to be in the mineral or synthetic fertilizer team. You can use the best of both worlds. Absolutely. And, and just to kind of expand on that, I think that the organic nutrients, once they break down, they are functionally mineral nutrients, right? Again, when it comes to NPK and all the other... Um, yeah, the plant can't tell the difference. The plant can't tell the difference there, but there's a lot of other stuff in that organic material that we're probably only in the infancy of understanding, right? There's biostimulants. We call it the spaces in between. Right. There's all this other stuff, and you yeah. want that other stuff. And I'll just put it to you this way. I like to look at agriculture, commercial agriculture, especially specialty crops and high-value crops, as kind of where I think a lot of the, the cannabis and the controlled environment and the, and the veggie guys probably need to go because these guys are all about dollars and cents. And so if something doesn't work, they're not going to use it. And you look at what they're doing. You look at uh, what a lot of the berry producers, right? Strawberry is a huge crop in California. Most of the country's strawberries are grown on our central coast. Mm-hmm. 
they're not just using mineral fertilizers. Yeah, they're, they're not just using one type of fertilizer. They're just going all out. They're using all these different things in combination, right? That's what I would encourage customers to do. Don't be scared of organics, but know how to manage them. And, and I would say this, if you can't swing it through your drip system as a soluble organic, incorporate it into your growing mix. That's a really, really simple way of getting it all in there and not have to worry about biofilm. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I think that it's just been a me slamming my head against the wall talking to these growers. I think they're very sophisticated. They got a thousand light grow set up, but they can't figure out a nine dollar purge valve. Sure. sure. I mean, it's sure. like, come on, you guys need to have an irrigation specialist come to your facility and talk to you about what large scale agricultural greenhouses are doing because it, it's not difficult. You know, anything that's going to create a biofilm can get rinsed out in a day. And so. I see this all the time where, you know, a, a customer will get burned um, improperly using organics, they'll get yeah. biofilm. It, it causes a lot of damage. I mean, you get to a certain point and you have to basically rip out all of your plumbing. And that's not a cheap expense, right? So they'll go the other route. They'll go the other extreme where they go... Clean as possible. Organics are out. We're going to only use mineral fertilizers, and we're going to inject oxidizers like peroxides and chlorine, things like that through our lines all the time. So we're going to kill all biology. We're we're done with biology. It's all gone. Sterile. (laughs) Right? We're going to grow in like inert uh, uh, insulation fiber. With a hospital room. Which, which, by the way, I'm not not, hating on any of that. That's another approach, and it's certainly works i just is that the best approach possible i don't think the flavor is there i would tend to agree with you so i mean that's just yeah my point of view what's the difference and why would someone use a liquid uh concentrated mineral fertilizer versus a powdered dry mineral fertilizer sure so there's a there's a few different things to consider some materials you just really can't get as a dry Mm -hmm. okay um, and that being? It's, it's usually more on the organic side of things. Yeah. So things like humix and fulvix, yes, you can get them dry. If you ever yeah. tried mixing them in water, yeah. sometimes it can be very, very difficult to actually get that in solution. Yeah. Um, so materials like that, they're probably better off just buying a liquid because it's so hard to mix it yourself with yeah. specialty equipment. So, so, so there's that. Um, some materials, they lose a lot of their... Um, bioactivity if you freeze dry them and turn them into a powder right so that would be another example but by and large if we're just talking about mineral fertilizers your mag sulfates your ammonium phosphates your your just your your salts right um there really isn't a functional difference between the two the liquid is just easier if you're growing on a small scale Mm -hmm. and that's really where liquid fertilizers came from Mm -hmm. right during my time with general hydroponics for instance you know they were one of the first to come on board with a liquid fertilizer people don't know this but they actually uh, had a dry fertilizer first and they were selling with their small little uh, hobbyist hydroponic system and this is way back in the 70s and what they were getting from customers was that well this dry stuff is hard to use because it turns into a brick <laughs> right there's that <laughs> and then number two um, we're using such small amounts of it that you have to think about it this way there's about 13 or 14 plant essential nutrients that will come in a complete fertilizer right um, and if let's just say that you had a pound of dry fertilizer and you had a, a gallon jug of liquid fertilizer okay and you wanted to get an even distribution of all of 13 plant nutrients in both cases okay with the liquid it's easy just shake it right and all of those little nutrient ions are bouncing around in the water and chances are very high that you're going to get a really good and even distribution of those nutrients now if you were to take that same thing in the uh, dry salt context and the powder context 
Well, that that would that would be about the same as taking like I don't know a gram of that, right, and dissolving that in water yourself. Well, the chances of you getting all thirteen nutrients, especially some of those minor nutrients, is vanishingly low, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're going to buy the dry powder nutrients. You probably want to be on a bit of a larger scale, or maybe you're just buying something really simple that only contains one or two nutrients where it doesn't matter, right? Yep. But if you're buying a complete nutrient yeah. that has especially the minor nutrients in it, and you're only growing a few plants, it, to me, it makes a lot of sense to go with the liquid. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, ease of use. You're coming home from a long day. You don't want to really want to be a chemist for a minute, you know? You don't want to calculate how many dry weight grams you need to put into a gallon and the right water temperature and so so it just comes down to ease of use i think for most people um that being said if you're on a larger scale then you're still buying bottled liquid nutrients just just know that you're paying a huge premium of course a huge huge premium you're shipping water the bottling is also very expensive the packaging is expensive everything is expensive Mm -hmm. so you just kind of have to do that cost calculus where you know especially if you're on a larger scale you're just we're just cutting bags open and dumping it in reservoirs and dissolving it anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's I guess how you want to spend your time and time is money, right? So, I think that I think that's actually a good way a good way to put it. I feel like we've answered a bunch of the top questions that people ask me all the time on Instagram and through emails. So, where can people find you? Where can they get a hold of you? company, etc. What's that information? Yeah, sure. So just a little bit about the, the company I work for these days. They're called ICL. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm part of the business unit that is in uh, responsible for sales of uh, primarily fertilizers and plant protection products. Again, into the professional nursery, greenhouse, hydroponic space. I do a little bit of stuff with cannabis these days, but it's not really my bread and butter like it used to be. Um, I manage sales in the West, so Hawaii, Northern California, Utah, Northern Nevada. It's kind of my mm-hmm. sales territory. If you want to find out more about our products or um, reach out to me directly, you can go to our website, iclgrowingsolutions.com, and you know, you'll be able to find a little avatar of me with mm-hmm. my, my contact. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to answer any questions about fertilizers or plants or whatever you, whatever you got. Okay. LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn. Just look up Ian Bateman. I Ian think I'll Bateman. probably be the first one that pops up. Yeah. All right. And then as you guys know, for me and Green Grow, we got Instagram at the Green Grow. We have thegreengrow.com for our website, Green Grow Biologicals for our YouTube. So, and I really appreciate everyone coming out to listen to our podcast on life, soil, and success. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode on the Regenerate Revolution Life Soil Success podcast. Do not forget to leave us a five-star rating, review, like, comment, and share with your friends.